0: Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, and we have an awesome podcast today. We're going to talk about Bitcoin's security budget and Strike's new $80 million Series B fundraise. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, reversibility of Ethereum transactions. A new paper uh, proposed by Stanford blockchain researchers suggests a new way to do this controversial thing. Uh, We're going to dive into some NFT marketplace drama, and we're going to talk about blockchain gaming, um, with Saul Kadir from the research team who released an excellent report today. But before we dive into any of that, uh, let's introduce everyone. We're here with my friend Christine Kim. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Alex. How are you?
0: I'm great. Um, you know, just trying to weather the uh, the coming economic apocalypse that we're being promised. But that's OK. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, we've got our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading here. How are you doing, Bim? Doing great, you know, not sleeping much, but doing great. <laughs> All the moves have been coming overnight the last few Absolutely. days. Absolutely. They
2: could pick a better time.
0: It's to like do I, it, That's yeah, what I said can, about the purge. Can't the devs do something? Um, I'm also joined. We're also joined by Saul Kadir from the research team. Hey, Saul. Hey, what's up? It's been a couple of weeks, I think, since you've been, maybe even a couple of months since yeah, you've been on.
3: Yeah, closer to a couple of months. Wow. But, uh, excited to get this gaming piece out and yeah. talk about that. Yeah, we're we going to talk a lot with Saul about um, the history of
0: gaming and um, what lessons can be drawn from uh, that history for Web3 game developers. Um, Newsflash, there's a lot that they need to learn. Um, great report out uh today friday uh we're recording this on wednesday but by the time you hear this uh saul's great report on the history of gaming and what web3 developers can learn from it will be out um so we'll talk with saul about that um also going to talk about some other topics do a little bit of a round table today but first let's go to our friend bimnet um the muse of markets um the titan of trading here at galaxy (laughs) <laughs> Bim, how are you doing? And uh, tell us a bunch of data came out yesterday that was yep. too, very strong, um, which in this upside down that we live in uh, is bad. Yep. Um, good so, is bad. Bad yeah, is good. Good is bad. Bad is good. Um, that's what happens when there's significant intervention in free markets, in my view. But tell us what it looks like from your seat.
2: Yeah. No. Um, you know the, the thing I'm paying closest attention to is uh, U.S. data. I'm paying most attention to that because it is the largest sort of part of the Fed's response function, right? Their response is largely going to be dictated by the the path and trajectory of, of, of U.S. data. What we got yesterday was uh, consumer confidence, which printed at 108. Was That's a very strong number. It beat expectations. Durable goods, um, that also beat expectations and was revised higher for, for the prior month. And new home sales, uh, which beat and were incredibly robust in terms of how strong they were in basically every region of the U.S. economy.
0: Even with these mortgage rates now, like a 6% range?
2: Absolutely. Because there's a supply issue in housing. Um, relative to the demand there is, like, there's not enough supply of homes. Um, and that's somewhat a function of, like, some of the demographics that the U.S. has. There was a lot of people, you know, prior to COVID that— we're holding off on on buying a home because home prices were high and and like people were more urban and not right. suburban, um, and so there there's some structural dynamics that you know mean that there's a lot of demand for homes and limited supply, right. and so you're still seeing very healthy housing activity. Some of that activity is happening at lower prices, yeah, but at the end of the day, like it's still happening in a very robust way. Right. We're not having a housing crisis. It, homes are, are, are being sold at very high prices
0: even with mortgages this high because that's what's crazy like, you know You have the sticker shock obviously of like a home's you know actual price, but then you've got the recurring monthly payment of your mortgage, right? Yep And I feel like most consumers probably think more about that recurring payment when they consider You know buying a house and that those have absolutely spiked Right, I mean the absolutely. I've, I've seen that, that here's, all- the, here's the issue though um,
2: Basically, over the last two years, everyone and their mom refinanced their mortgage. Yeah, They locked it in for 30 years at historically low rates. And right. so the monthly mortgage liabilities that most homeowners have are actually incredibly low. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that uh, it's actually much better than basically everywhere else uh, in the developed world. Most of the developed world um, has shorter t- duration or mortgages. Or even variable, right? Or a, a larger percentage that, that's variable. Um, the U.S. is is isolated from that in a way because most people do you know fifteen or thirty year fixed, right? Um, and so, you know, the fact that that U.S. is is more fixed and longer duration means that there's a a, a less effective transmission mechanism right. of higher interest rates and higher mortgage rates right. back into the housing market, right? And so that leads to a differential in like data. Um, between the U.S. and abroad, and that ultimately helps tr- drive like further currency sort of you know devaluation you know versus the dollar. Yeah. Right. U.S. data stays really strong for you know longer because right. you know there's less of a it's transmission a mechanism. Lag. Yeah. Right. And, Some giant
0: percentage I read on Twitter. This is going around a lot last yeah. week on Twitter. It was like you know, 50% or something, and don't quote me on these numbers, but a huge percent, like a half of mortgage holders have rates below 4%, right? And, no, that and, would not and, shock me. And like 30% have rates below 3%. And so, yes, your point here is that it's just, you know, people like me that want to go buy their first house. We're the ones that we're going to be paying those high rates, not, you know, my mom who's had her house for a long time and has refinanced at a low rate. Yeah. Not most people. Most homeowners aren't affected by those rising rates they're not yeah
2: they're not they there's a a synthetic wealth effect to it almost it's like you have an asset on your balance sheet it was
0: like it used to be like oh man um you know this you know i want to you know marry this guy or because he's got a rolex or this woman because they've got a diamond necklace and now you want to marry the guy because he's got a mortgage mortgage rate or whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's like the sign of Oh no, my
2: favorite meme is like you know uh you know, he's a six but has a boat. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it a ten or the vice versa. Yeah,
0: he's a six, but he's got a two percent mortgage. Uh, yeah, two percent mortgage rate. It's a nine and um, a half. Okay, so step back though. The the um the the uh the data all came in strong. Yeah. So what does that mean? I mean, what what that was the means market's the Fed reaction? Fed had,
2: so it was really interesting because while this data was coming out, you had uh, one of the more influential members of, of the Fed, Bullard, uh, speaking and and taking a very a, a, a very hawkish stance, and so. I was just thinking in my head while that was happening, what if you told him this was the data that came out as he was being interviewed? And, you know, there's nothing that they could do but be more hawkish. And put simply, like, U.S. data for the next three months in particular in the labor market and with respect to inflation is most likely, from all the indicators that I'm looking at and from the folks I've been talking to, is is still going to be pretty strong. Um, And so the Fed, in terms of their rhetoric, um, they're going to have to sort of keep it as hawkish as as possible so and and the biggest thing i think you know for our listeners to think about is the consequences of going the other way are tremendous and it is almost a, a boundary condition for the fed if the fed were to pivot in any way right in this kind of a market right it would counteract all of the things that they've been trying to do right stocks would start to rip higher that would cause a wealth effect right that would cause increased inflation spending and... increased spending yeah unemployment won't go up right the risk of causing an unwind to, to what they've just brought about is insane and so you know like to, to think about it the 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 Bank of England had a 1 billion dollar bond purchasing operation today and they announced that you know they are gonna step into the bond market to avoid this liquidity crisis <laughs> And with a $1 billion purchase today and the promise of, like, future purchases, a 30-year guilt rallied 100 basis points. <laughs> uh, like, you know. You're, enormous you're, move. Enormous move for the, the little magnitude that was actually bought. Literally the any, signal.
0: any signal of we're not actually as hawkish we'll w- w- Catapult, catapult yeah.
2: this market when inflation's still on an eight-handle. Yeah. And unemployment's at 3.5. five. Yeah. Right? And so they have no choice but to take one of the most hardline stances that you're going to see, or very Paul Volcker Basically, asked. For risk. how
1: long, though, Bim? Yeah. Until the data turns. The, what they've
2: told you is that until the data turns, they have no choice but to remain on the front foot. The risk of spiraling inflation, hyperinflation, a wage spiral, a goods spiral, etc., is too high for them to not be as aggressive as, as they're being. I think the entire rate market is still mispriced. Personally, I think you should be thinking about back-end yields closer to five percent and terminal yields closer to five percent, with risk of even higher. And I think people are dramatically underestimating uh, how how much the dollar can rally even even further. There's been already there's already been an insane amount of of, of central banks defending their currencies. The BOJ. Uh, to, well, last week, intervened to the tune of 21 billion dollars in, in the in the FX market. The the Ministry of, of Finance in Hong Kong has been defending their their peg with hundreds of, of billions of dollars. Other central banks have been selling treasuries to to and and you know selling dollars to, to protect their grid. and the currency move just got going. The rate move just got going. Yeah. It's it literally like there there's. You know, the way I like to think about it is, is very simple. The dollar right now has two characteristics that make it an unbelievable own. It's positive carry because you're earning real yields um, ab- above a lot of other countries, like European rates versus U.S. you have a massive positive interest rate differential, right? Even U.S. versus some EM countries even, right? So you have the benefit of holding the currency and earning carry on it. Then you have the benefit of it being a risk off hedge. If the world goes to shit, there's a huge flight to quality in terms of assets and currencies, dollar being king, right? So in a, in a scenario where, where things are going okay, you're earning money. And in a scenario where things are going bad, you're things appreciating. And so it has this unique risk profile that makes it such a, a powerful own. In addition, the carry profile is likely only going to get better if the Fed continues to, to raise rates. Which brings me to my other and most important point that I'd like to highlight You know, during this podcast. Um, I think one of the things that the, the Bank of England sort of brought to light this week and, and the fiscal response and sort of the, the chaos that's happening over there is sort of like the, the argument about fiat currencies is at the forefront again, right? You had a scenario where uh, yields skyrocketed in the U.K., and their currency were still depreciating like crazy. You had a mismatch between fiscal and monetary policy as if there was no communication or coordination <laughs> or, or just rational behavior whatsoever. Um, and, and, I mean, and you look at the data, I think like cable Bitcoin volumes are up like 11X like more than usual. But point being is this is a phenomenon, uh, the, like the market reaction you had is a reaction you have when people lose faith and confidence in a currency or in a a, in a monetary authority like the Bank of England, and whenever monetary credibility comes to mind, at least in my head, I think Bitcoin, and I think eventually you see you see where the end game is going to play out, right? You have a bunch of populists and you know socialist nations that always want to just send checks to people, and you have inflation problems, and you have you know central banks that are willing to print money willing to intervene at any point in time when when there's an issue left and right and ultimately like this is going to end with tons of money printing to appease people and bitcoin will be one of the best trades in history i think maybe i'm getting a little sensational the problem is again I'm, I'm, i'm very bullish bitcoin but you can't trade it right now it will function trade like a risk asset s p and nasdaq and a bunch of other risk assets are all still going lower I don't think Bitcoin will be any different, but when you get the unwind of, of the big trade that's just happened, which is, you know, stronger dollar, lower risk assets, and higher interest rates, when you get that unwind, un- unwind's gonna be incredibly powerful for Bitcoin. Yeah. You'll see the end game, which is just endless money printing we need to, everyone. You know, I I love this. Hyperinflation and, and tr- you know.
0: <laughs> Truly fascinating. Um, I have a couple points. One, what I said at the beginning, I mean, that we're in this upside down where Bad is good and good is bad. You've explained well why, and we've talked about it a lot before. But and and Jay Powell has said why, right? Because mm-hmm. they their tightening won't be isn't going to work unless the in, unless inflation comes down. In case unless wages come down, and most likely employment goes up, and probably housing will have to come down, right? Like all these things. Yeah. And so he can't keep uh, stop giving us his medicine until um, we actually uh look like we've been taking it basically and
2: absolutely and that brings me to an interesting point not only does the fed need rates to be high they need people to believe that rates will be high for a long time right they need the market to believe that as well they need the market to believe that they will be consistent in their logic and not just flinch on, on on a whim and so you're right
0: i mean if they flinched now or even soon um, that would probably that could even literally spell the end of the Fed and the dollar. It's literally credibility, it's literally that big a deal. Their
2: credibility is on the line like nobody else. yeah. And I have to say Powell's done an incredible job, especially compared to some other central banks right now <laughs> of of sounding
0: measured, credible, and but also serious and hawkish. Yeah. yes, yeah. I think it's sad that we 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 as an industry didn't haven't told the Bitcoin story as well. It is trading like a risk asset. Um it shouldn't it shouldn't, in my view. I think people thought, well, it's like a venture bet on gold, but because it's a venture bet, it should be thought of as like a risk asset. A lot of the the big allocators did bitcoin stuff in their sort of venture sleeve, yeah, right. And so it trades like a risk asset. Um, the marginal buyers today are you know, spe- short-term speculators and hed- hedgers, other you know, outside of the Bitcoin you know adherents that that are are just stacking. But if you consider, it's consistency, right? It's predictability. The forward expectations for Bitcoin's <laughs> supply growth are probably the most stable thing in the world of finance right now, right? It the should be thought sh- of
2: short-term money market yields. Yeah, but it's. I'm so sorry. It takes a lot for me to like invest in anything right now, and it should for anybody. Yeah, when you can get risk-free money at four point three percent.
0: Yeah, one of the banks going to actually increase their savings they were getting grilled the. The heads of the big banks in congress two weeks ago they the congress people said well rates are this high how come you know you're only paying point one five percent and they're like mean, oh it, we're gonna raise them and it's like oh yeah.
2: yeah i mean it is <laughs> I think it's it's a little disingenuous of the banks um their profit margins are insane right because they're
0: collecting that difference absolutely yeah
2: and this is why i think there's such a strong place for crypto right it's just the, the regulations that make it so tough but There's pass-through mechanisms. Like, why can't some institution or DAO go buy T-bills for me? give me a, a checking's account in USDC right. and give me the the 4% right. on on the bills like cuz you can't get that right now at the you can't pay interest the security and right. like, you got to like, be really a accredited figured investor out the security thing, it yeah. is just these are all just roadblocks to allow banks to have huge profit
0: margins it's a very classic
2: and like you can set it up and like regulators are smart enough to set it up in a way that's consumer friendly yeah. there's just no vested interest in like giving US consumers access to a
0: product that, like... Disintermediates the bank.
2: Disintermediates the banks. Because yeah. uh, they you pay a shit ton of money to, to lobby like crazy. You saw that clip of, like, hey, oh, yeah, oh my, my staffer no, no, not. I is don't even joining this. Uh, the I know. J.P. Morgan. It oh, bank. I was Moynihan at bank, yeah. bank of
0: America. Yeah, his staffer was going to BOA, and they had... Like, but let, that,
2: that being a To aside, be clear, that's
0: not, like, a surprise. Like, no, that no, happens no, no, all no, the time. No. Who do you want at but your But it's bank?
2: more like they give money to both sides of the aisle so that they're in the room and... You know they're part of the process, yes. but at the end of the day, like if if these Congress people were actually about consumer protections, they would tell they would try to disintermediate these banks because all these banks want is a fatter profit margin at the expense of their savings yep. savers. Yeah. And also, who likes banks anyway? Like, like, Who's why are the these politicians like protecting Daddy's them? Oh, point. wait, because they donate to their campaign. I know. I hear you. I mean, I could go on. <laughs> no, a let's not. We've on done why this. congressional terms need to be no, longer. No, no, we're not doing. I that. mean, I, I, it's it's <laughs> so messed up.
0: Um. All right. So, I mean, this is pretty good. I mean, I think we've we've covered it. But um, anything else, like in the short term? I mean, we'll probably talk to you next week. But I mean, what are you doing? Looking at for the rest of the week? I mean, what do you think? I mean, there's so row, many but.
2: things I could go on a rant on, but I think there there are bubbles in, in so many different assets. I think the, the world is entirely um, mispositioned for the interest rate environment that we're in. I mean, things like private equity. I mean, some of the valuations stuff we're, we're going at just as little as like a, handful, a couple of months ago make no sense uh, on the planet. Yeah. There's lots of assets that sit on balance sheet. That aren't productive and in a world where you have 4% overnight money and like, you know, short-term interest rates Like there's a lot of assets that need to be sold and there's not that much liquidity for these assets The, the one of the world's largest bond markets just blew up because there wasn't enough liquidity What do you think happens when like large PE funds tried to sell, you know, huge positions? Um, and in crypto, I mean, it's just there's just so much like there's so many protocols, I think, are, are that should be worth fractions of, of what they're worth. Yeah. And it's literally a function of, okay, do I sell 10% of this asset and, and cause 90% of my holdings to drop by 50% in value? <laughs> right? There's a bunch of game theory going on yeah. between all these, like, huge bag holders in, in the VC world. But ultimately, I mean, it's pretty clear, especially in a 4% interest rate environment, God forbid, 5 that there's a lot of worthless stuff out there. Yeah, and people need to recalibrate their brains for four percent interest, and including equities. Think about very stable companies that generate cash flows. They are basically fixed income instruments. They're they're not gonna. There's not gonna be an insane period of productivity growth for a lot of these companies. They're, some of them aren't huge tech companies. They're basically bonds. If interest rates are rising, these bonds are worth less. Assets should be worth less.
0: I hear you. Bimnet, Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Bim's been getting some shout outs from our listeners on Twitter. We really appreciate that. Um, Shout out to all my Twitter friends. Yeah, (laughs) Bim doesn't even have a Twitter account, so maybe we'll change that. Thanks a lot, BimNet. All right, let's talk about a couple interesting things. Uh, Me, Christine, and Saul are here. Um, One of the first, I think that it's a decent segue was that the Bitcoin payments company Strike, uh, founded and run by Jack Mahlers, um, raised eighty million dollars in a Series B. It was led by Ten Thirty One, which is a Bitcoin focused VC, um, and and but they had Wash U in St. Louis and the University of Wyoming also took part. So, a pretty big chunk of money for a Bitcoin only company. Um, haven't seen a lot of raises actually. This might I, I should probably look, but I, this might be the biggest. I might stake my get I take a guess here and say this is actually maybe the biggest round for a Bitcoin only company that I've I've seen. Um, so, congrats to the Strike team. Strike is a, um, a a Bitcoin payments company, but they primarily affect this at the user level through a, a mobile payments app. Um, lets you send money to anyone um, in dollars or Bitcoin. Um, they utilize on-chain and Lightning network behind the scenes to facilitate that. You know, I I just you know Bitcoin for payments. Um, I I've always liked it. I certainly use Bitcoin for payments a decent amount. But and what do you guys think?
1: This year, I think Strike had announced at Bitcoin Miami some kind of a partnership with a lot of the major e-commerce merchants to be able to purchase, like, common, like, groceries. Yeah, and, and, um, like, a point of sale, a
0: big point of sale company. I can't remember the name, but, like, a a big one. One of these companies, like, you don't know the name of, um, but they power a lot of the point of sale transaction machines at, you know, brick and mortar stores. Um, Yeah, that would allow you to pay in Bitcoin, um, even over Lightning. Um so pretty pretty big stuff. I mean I think you know there's a lot of uses for money, right? I mean money gets used to buy things, sure. It gets used to store your wealth if you save money. It also gets used in financial applications, right? And so um Bitcoin doesn't have a lot of the financial stuff. You know, there's some stuff on 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 liquid, um, but that's really sort of asset issuance. That's a side chain. There's some stuff, you know, Sovereign is built on the rootstock um sidechain, which is an EVM compatible Bitcoin sidechain. There's so Sovereign's like a DeFi um app and and there there are there are some things. Um of course you have like this the Block stack ecosystem, which has other stuff which is a little bit more tangentially connected to Bitcoin, but connected nonetheless. Um but we haven't seen sort of an explosion of DeFi, right? So that use of money isn't heavily used. And I think Bitcoiners typically argue that, you know, you got to, you know, walk before you can run, basically. The idea here is they want to build sound money first, and that's a big enough undertaking. Um, I don't know if that's the right order, but that's the... Anyway, payments, though, Lightning has been making, a, a, you know, huge advances, and it's really easy to use. I mean, this narrative that it's hard to use, it's it's hard to use non-custodially, that is true. Um, but it's really easy to, you know, send yourself some sats, uh, you know, from Cash App or Strike. Like these things are pretty easy.
1: I'd be really interested to see the data around user adoption for Bitcoin as payments versus the user adoption for stable coins yeah. for payments. Because I remember, I think at Mainnet Masari, there was this panel with a bunch of Bitcoiners about what's being built on Bitcoin. And Udi, who was one of the panelists, had talked about how he thinks the biggest competitor to Bitcoin is not Ethereum or all these other cryptocurrencies. It's actually stable coins like USDC, that, USDT. That's, I was about to
3: say that, actually. As a person who like tries to pay for stuff in crypto... Like I buy stuff with, I just bought something with USDC the other day on Solana and like this is a liquid stablecoin on an alt layer one. And that is kind of key, I think, to adoption for merchants because they can see the things quoted in the currency they're used to. Like I bought a hoodie with it and Bitcoin has been always missing that connection to like traditional DeFi rails, stable coins. You have to quote everything in BTC and sats and then just at the UI level, do the conversion for the user. and. It just adds a bit of complexity, and it's not interoperable. Those are some of the challenges, I think.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's a fair point. You know, I I have a little bit of a contrarian take on this. Um, I've done a lot of work on Bitcoin payments. I haven't been able to refresh this work since I've got to Galaxy, um, not because of Galaxy. Just we haven't done redone it. But when I was at Fidelity, we did some research on this. Um, and we found that Bitcoin was used quite a lot for payments. I mean, significantly more than people realize—something like billions of dollars per quarter every quarter since 2017. And we I, I, we did this analysis a couple of ways. One, we came up with some heuristics with which to look at you know Bitcoin transaction data. This is kind of a blunt instrument, but I thought gave us a pretty good um, you know benchmark. So, for example, we looked at transactions not between exchanges. Uh, with a dollar value of $500 or less, um, you know, um, and, and, and in transaction types that looked like consumer wallets as opposed to like, you know, um, you know a non, the non-batch transactions, for example. I think we looked at transactions with only two outputs, a spend and a change, as opposed to something that like an exchange might send that may have many outputs, Right. Um, and and then and then for the other, we think of that as sort of like a, a top-down analysis, right? And then for a bottoms-up analysis, we worked with a few of the forensics companies, um, and we basically just did some attribution on Bitcoin payment processing firms, theoretically, like Strike, um, you know, like BitPay, like Open Node, um, these companies that facilitate the receipt of Bitcoin by merchants, um, and we just did some attribution and then just counted flows into their wallets, summed the flows into their wallets over time. So like those, we were very confident, those numbers, we were very confident and they, and they're below right they're, They were lower than the top down analysis number, which was sort of a broad stroke. Now, if I send Christine money because I owe her for lunch on Bitcoin and it's $10 with two outputs, not between an exchange that would show in our data. And I, di- I don't consider that a payment for a good and service from a merchant. Um, So it's it's broader, but um, the bottoms up analysis we were very confident in because we were literally just counting flows to firms who do this for merchants, right? So inbound into their wallets that they then pay to the merchant. Um, and it was a lot, is all I'm saying. And then the other thing with stables, like I hear this all the time, it makes tons of sense. If they're volatile, if currencies are volatile, people don't like to use them for spending. That's just clear, right? Because you want to know that like, you know, when I when I take my money out of my bank, Today And then I walk down the street tomorrow to buy, you know, buy some sunglasses that it's the same price as it was. You don't want it to. Right. It's why inflation is so dangerous. Um, why, you know, the, the, the Fed and others want some inflation, but much less so that it's slower so that it's not, you have plenty of time to feel the stability. Um, so I get that, but I, I don't see in the real world. I do see, and Udi has made this point, um, stable coins being used to buy digital goods, um, and and it is you know Udi made a pretty strong case. I thought that, gosh, it'd be it would have been nice if Bitcoin had played that role, not ETH even. But even then, ETH is used and Soul is used a lot to buy those digital goods. Um, it makes sense logically that stable coins should be widely used for for payments. I just don't think we actually see that in the real world yet. Um, but it could. And and of course, the argument for Bitcoin is that you know it's still capitalizing. If it reaches its end state, whatever that is where everyone on earth has decided what they, their view on it is. There's no outstanding giant buyer or for seller, right? Hyper Bitcoinization is the upside case for this scenario, but it doesn't have to end that way. It could just be, all right, we all have decided what Bitcoin is. It's like gold. We, we all decided what gold is. It's pretty stable over the, you know, centuries, frankly. Um, once it is stable it'd be i mean i think that's basically the last barrier to payments for bitcoin it's just pure price stability um and that could come just when everybody decides what it is and stop speculating on it right once it's fully capitalized it's a possibility
1: do you think when the block subsidy runs out on bitcoin that'll also significantly change the discourse around what bitcoin is actually viewed as by its holders
0: that's such a good question um i know there's so much debate about security budget and stuff um for Bitcoin. Um, it's
1: like a huge question mark over Bitcoin that I feel like I've I've never heard really like a concrete plan around.
0: Well, I mean, there isn't a plan. I think there's a couple of views of whether that's important or not one way or another. I think on the one hand, you know, most of the history of cryptocurrency tells us that miners or validators need to be compensated. Right. And so that A lot of work has been done by a lot of protocols to innovate and try different ways of doing that, right? And bitcoins, we know pretty well, it started with a 50 BTC subsidy per block. It's now 6.25 after several halvings, Um, you know, but in dollar terms, miners are basically, I mean, they made more money last November uh, when Bitcoin was 69,000, yes, per um, but, you know, if you look at like, you know, yearly and stuff like they're making they're making more or if you look at the halvings as one example, like the amount that miners were making at each halving, it's up significantly like they are making more money. Um, you know, I think Bitcoiners will get the the, the other view, obviously, is that that, that they won't make any, enough money when the subsidy runs out. Right. And when the subsidy runs out, then Bitcoin mining miners will be compensated solely by transaction fees and transaction fees today are extremely low. Um, and if Bitcoin enables, like ETH is doing, a much a really robust layered scaling approach, block space will be abundant, right? And so fees should stay low, theoretically. I mean, that's why I'm, I don't know if it's bearish or bullish. I think it's probably bullish for ETH on this, but bearish on fees, I guess. Like, I mean, I think fees should come down over time on ETH as all of these roll-ups and stuff create all this additional synthetic block space. Um so the idea is if fees are low and subsidy is gone, who's going to pay for mining? And now Bitcoin is beautifully designed for this. I mean, if miners stop mining, difficulty comes down. Bitcoin continues to function. The question is, if there's a giant pile of SHA-256 hash rate now sitting offline, not mining, right, that presents a security risk for Bitcoin. And and that was true, by the way, even last summer during the China crackdown when hash rate dropped by like more than 50%, right? That was a risk. Like we now we knew like ourselves that those ASICs were in flight to new miners. But theoretically, they could have been locked in a warehouse by the Chinese government and then the Chinese government could have waited for difficulty to come down and then brought those online and and basically very effectively attacked the network. So it's the measure of Bitcoin security isn't literally the absolute amount of hash rate. It's the essentially the percentage when it comes to a 51% attack. It's the percentage of total p- theoretical possible hash rate. And this is one area where ASICs are really good for the network, right? Because there's only really like one type of viable machine. Whereas with GPU mining, like if I send out malware to every PS5 on on Earth, we could easily attack a GPU mineable coin. Um, Because there's a lot of latent, extant potential hash rate, right? So um, that's the one view, right? That with the subsidy down and the fees low, like how we're going to pay for Bitcoin um, security. Some others argue that transactions will pay for it. I mean, first of all, transactions will pay whatever we have in that environment. If no changes are made, whatever is paid for will be paid by transactors. Um, you know, some people say we'll get the security we pay for and the market can adjust to this. Like if Bitcoin is insecure, fees will rise, fees will have to rise Um, and we can impose that. You know, we have a minimum relay fee right now on nodes. Most nodes don't route a zero fee payment. They literally do not propagate it. Can be added directly by a miner. It's not at the protocol level, but it's at the software level. Um, That's to prevent spam by the way, right? And that was added years ago you could easily see nodes start saying, now you need five sat per byte minimum, right? Like there are ways to add fees outside of inducing demand. I think the core thing is that if Bitcoin was big enough in terms of transaction demand, fees would pay for it. I think there's questions about that. I, I don't really have a strong view one way or another. I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom um, because it doesn't matter for it, uh, probably 10 years at a minimum. Um, But it also matters a lot sooner than 100 years, right? So when the subsidy runs out in like 2135 or whatever the estimate is, it matters a lot sooner than that, for sure. Um, But your actual question was, without the subsidy, would that change the behavior? And I'm assuming what you mean is, well, if transaction fees are paying for it, does that make transaction fees go higher? So will that affect payment behavior? I mean, if transaction fees were high, it would affect payment behavior. When we did that analysis with payments, it wasn't the price of Bitcoin that altered. People said, "Oh, when Bitcoin's up a lot, people don't want to spend it." That's not true. That that what our data showed was that it was when fees were high they didn't want to spend it, right? Like payments were consistent. Payment transactions that we had labeled throughout that entire period, they were uh, when Bitcoin was rising in twenty seventeen. When it was coming down in 2018 and 19, um, it was when um, congestion on the network caused fees to spike that payments dropped off. It wasn't um, literally the price of Bitcoin, we don't think, doing it. So um, that matters. Um, it's, It's a little bit of a dance. I think you need constrained block space and significant demand on the L1. And then maybe at the L2 level, like Lightning, which is what Strike obviously works on, we can have... Fast cheap payments. I mean, I think that's sort of the vision. And if the and if there's a balance that can emerge in the in the Bitcoin market to hopefully balance that out, then no changes need to be made. But no changes need to be made now. And I hear you with this long term like question. It is overhang. A lot of people think it is. I'm not. I don't really have a view one way or another yet. I'm basically not worried about it yet, and I'm going to revisit this over the coming years because um, it doesn't matter right now. And it. It might matter in ten years. I don't think it matters super soon. And this idea that Bitcoin's so unchanging that it couldn't save itself if if this became a dire situation, I think is totally false. Bitcoiners just don't want to tinker. It doesn't mean they don't want to save the protocol if it needs saving. Um, so, and, and also, I mean, you know, just obviously, not tinkering with the protocol is uh, is a positive for Bitcoin. It's a differentiator. It also inhibits some types of growth. I mean, it's why there's no Web3 economy on Bitcoin, right? I mean, because they didn't slap an EVM on it and, or, or a VM at the time. I guess it would have. <laughs> that would be ironic if Bitcoin added the Ethereum virtual machine. <laughs> um, so, I mean, th- there's pros and cons, but I think, you know, not tink. Right now, it's still best for Bitcoin for sure, I think, to be credibly unchanging when it comes to monetary economics and, um, and, its, and its system.
1: Yeah, it's always like a back pocket solution. Like it's not something I think Bitcoin has proven itself to be extremely unchanging. But there's always this overhang of, well, the monetary policy of Bitcoin could change if it needed to. And this question around, well, these cryptocurrencies we think of as a lot more secure and a lot more the value proposition of cryptocurrencies is that it's like a hedge against bad central bank policies. I think these policies are always someone is governing them. Someone is ensuring that like these policies stay in place and there's always the potential that these policies change, maybe not in in accordance to people who are, you know, whose job it is to like create monetary policies for international systems, um, but whose job it is if they're a core developer, if they're a Bitcoin core developer or an Ethereum core developer. Uh, So it's interesting. It's interesting to think about, you know, these these hypothetical end, end game cases. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely ethereum has basically made itself unforkable by by the rise of DeFi and centralized stable coins as as we've talked about right so what these disputes really happen in ethereum at the core developer level and they're pushed down to the users and the network
1: right so that yeah that whole statement was very much more um actually kind of against ethereum so ethereum's monetary policy is constantly changing and it is in the hands of ethereum core developers to change and the question is if cryptocurrencies are these like permissionless decentralized technologies that are supposed to be a credible credibly neutral network it's like it's not really the 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 void or like the absence of central bankers or people who are um constantly changing monetary policies it's actually just the replacement of them with somebody else right
0: that's true in a lot of cases um i think for bitcoin if they if this change needs to occur what you'll see is a fork at some point, and then the market will decide if the change needs to happen. And if they right. do, they'll start using the forked version. And, and if that change, to be clear for the listeners, I think primarily the change, the simplest change is perpetual inflation. Right. Is to, you know, it, introduce a one percent, you know, annualized inflation rate on Bitcoin um, to pay miners to subsidize mining. Um obviously that's anathema to most bitcoiners view of what bitcoin is because 21 million hard cap is the meme i mean that's like core but you know if 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 that doesn't end up working other solutions will be proposed and what is nice about bitcoin um like you said is that it it's it's much less centrally managed which is like i said it's also inhibits things like innovation in some ways but it means that this can just emerge as a variety of forks we could try one could try uh, like an eip 1559 burn mechanism another could do perpetual inflation like and we'll just see the market will just decide and like and i'm confident bitcoin will exist what what it looks like in, in a in an edge case or if the in a I don't maybe it's not even an edge case. Some people would say it's inevitable that this problem exists again. I'm not so certain, but um, something called Bitcoin will exist. Um, and if it look, if 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 it need <laughs> and, and to be clear, right, this has been tried a whole bunch of times. I mean, there's a movement uh, funded by some Bitcoin opponents to make Bitcoin to, to pressure Bitcoin to move to proof of stake. Uh, You might see that on Twitter. If you follow crypto and Bitcoin people on Twitter, they promote those tweets. They pay to promote them. I'm not going to say the name of it um, to give them that satisfaction. But Bitcoiners have rightly pointed out, dude, there is Bitcoin proof of stake. There is Bitcoin POS, a coin that forked Bitcoin's UTXO set and uses validators. And it literally like nuked to zero. It's been at zero for like years at this point. So, you know, we'll just let the market decide. We just will. All right. That was fun. That was a fun conversation. I didn't think we were going to do this. Anyway, that was all about strike, apparently. And uh, <laughs> they're awesome rays. No, but congrats to that team. And Lightning, you know, we're, we're going to put out something soon on Lightning. Um, it's it really shouldn't be ignored. I actually I recommend Arcane Research's pieces on Lightning have been excellent. Um, it's growing like crazy and it really does work. It really is super fast and cheap. I mean, faster than a credit card swipe to pay over Lightning. Truly shocking. Um, so congrats. A lot of that work being done by um, Jack and his team at Strike, but and others as well, of course.
1: And if you're interested in, in reading more about Bitcoin fees and why they're so low, we also have a really great report on it written by Alex Yu, um, going through a lot of different scalability improvements, a lot of ways in which you can optimize um, block space, existing block space on Bitcoin without even increasing mm-hmm. the block size. There you go. Um, so definitely be sure to check Thank that out. Thank
0: you. Um, that was a fun one to write. Um, that's on our website. Um, So check that out. Okay, let's go to this other one, Christine. This is kind of fun. Now we're turning the tables. We did some Bitcoin, some really deep sort of Bitcoin questions. This cuts to the heart of, I think, a lot, not just Ethereum, but of of one of crypto's other big value propositions. Um, Some Stanford blockchain researchers uh, wrote a paper and um, suggested a, a new ERC token standard that is reversible. These are reversible transactions Um, And the idea was that because of hacks and thefts and all the stuff that happens that's, you know, not so good in crypto. And
1: And we've seen many of them in the last couple months. Wouldn't
0: it be great if your ETH was stolen or your tokens were stolen and you could reverse the transaction? Um, This really divided a lot of the community, Um, not just I mean, you know, every a bunch of Ethereans were upset. A bunch of Bitcoiners thought it was stupid. A bunch of a bunch of a lot of people. Um, I will say before we inevitably, I think, dump on this idea a little bit, um, I will say there are definitely we shouldn't look at this as a replacement, I think, for normal transactions. I think having a lack of reversibility or permanence, permanent finality is a huge feature of the crypto experiment. Huge. Bitcoin, ETH, they all have this. Um, It's the reason why chargeback fraud is impossible. It's the reason why I can receive money from someone I don't know and know for certain that I received it and that I have it and it can't be taken away. It's it's the reason we use a permissionless system, but there could be use cases where this is interesting. So I mean I, I commend them for that. There's no there's no harm in. Anyone can create a new, you know, smart contract. Why not? Um, but I don't know. What were your thoughts, Christine, on this?
1: I think this idea is super preliminary. And it really came off of, I think, four years ago, Vitalik had made a tweet being like, wouldn't this be interesting? Somebody should really look into this. That's and great. every time Vitalik does this on Twitter, someone does someone look, at does look at it. into great. it. And so four years later, we have this, this paper by the Stanford Blockchain Researchers. Um, and, and at the core, I think, of this model is basically a DAO like a, a a system of voting where if it's known that, you know, the majority of these tokens in this application was hacked, was stolen, voters can congregate and say, you know, let's issue this upgrade to the application and get our tokens back. And I don't think that's actually so different from the power that many decentralized finance applications have already handed over to DAOs for different various upgrades, like MakerDAO, for example, right. and the kind of vaults that they're allowing, the, the reliance around USDC and the different conversations around should the DAO, you know, reduce makerDAO's reliance on USDC. I think there's many ways in which you can revert core aspects of a decentralized application already through DAOs. So this proposal to me doesn't sound too too controversial, and if anything, you know, the authors have also reiterated that this is not in any way supposed to replace ERC-20 or ERC-721s. It's just... Another potential idea around if you wanted reversibility, right. here's one way in which you can make that happen.
0: Yeah, I think they had the part of the idea was like you you have within a time period. It was a couple of days or a day or two um, to like say that the you wanted a transaction reversed. Right. Let's say you said you were hacked as the example. And yeah. And then basically there's some group of of hopefully decentralized. But I think and they have some more about this in the paper. So. Um, Go read it. But um, then they could they could act and they could reverse them. I agree. I mean, I think that's I think that's frankly, it's fine. I think the outrage was like, we don't want our we want our permanent, uncensorable monies and and immutable monies. Right. And and I, I think you're right. This isn't in contradiction to that. They're not saying hard fork upgrade Ethereum to make ETH native transfers reversible by a DAO. They're saying we have this idea for an interesting smart contract that would allow this. Maybe securities would need this, right? If we tokenized real estate and stuff, you might need this, right? I mean, it's not out of the question.
1: I do think though that one of like the core reasons around why people were so angry was if by any chance there was any sort of doubt in like the immutability of the Ethereum ledger or like the block Bitcoin's ledger. I think that would credibly like right b- rem- like the value of these two blockchains would I, definitely. It was like, kind like, of commit.
0: how how the uh, main uh, researcher Ka- Kylie Jenner, Ka- Kylie Jenner, not not um, <laughs> Kylie whoa. Jenner. Is there an I there? Oh there is an i i mean so, oh you're right so but it's not um you know of chris jenner's progeny uh, from keeping up with the kardashians i don't know actually maybe it is no it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, i think it was a little bit the way they marketed it in the tweets it was very like hey like ethereums what if your like eth could be rev- ETH transactions
3: could be reversible yeah people were like whoa 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 <laughs> I, don't, I actually liked a lot of the ideas in there i think some transactions especially for like Regular users, because I think about that use case a lot. We were even talking about how your emails have a one minute delay before. Mine yes. Because like people just even they <laughs> might just sign something accidentally or not realize what's happening at the smart contract level. And this could be kind of useful for that without relying on the protocol to like
1: handle. That's fair.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think at the application layer, it's fine for if, as long as you know that that's what is there, right? Um, I think part of the criticism is like, well, shouldn't, like, why do you need the decentralized blockchain then, basically? Um, which actually it's is both right and wrong. Like, on the one hand, yes, you're right. Like, if, you know, why not just use a trusted intermediary then who can give you your money back if something goes wrong? You know, like I had to cancel something that I bought because they never delivered it and they gave me my money back. Um, so in a way, that's, that's you know, a fair comparison because that's what the blockchain you don't need the blockchain if you are going to be permissioned in general yeah however then i have a friend um a vc who his email was hacked this is a few years ago and uh the hacker read the read his emails and realized that this person has like a a private banker that they used to do wires and stuff for things and that he can just email him and say send this wire here and that person used his email and impersonated him and got money wired from out to like Literally like a bank in like Minnesota or something like or whatever, not like a foreign, not like a crazy faraway bank. My friend was never able to reverse this transaction once. Never once. They couldn't get the money back for him. None of the banks involved. And it's like, isn't that that's what a lot of crypto opponents have touted as a problem with crypto, that it's not reversible in this spot. And the regular banking system is. But it's not.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you know, once you send money, it's it's done.
0: Remember, there was the there was like the there was some the Citibank was on the hook. For they accidentally paid or, or received or paid. I can't remember. So yeah. it, this happens, and and the money doesn't come back. Yeah, it, it's so it's like you know that that criticism that crypto is bad because it's irreversible, but the traditional system is good because it is reversible. It, it's false. Like <laughs> well. A lot of it's not reversible, is right? All I'm you're
3: saying. talking specifically about, like, bank transfers, but credit cards effectively are that vector that people use to do. Well, that's
0: because you're using a trusted intermediary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the, actually
3: just yeah. paying with their money. Right, right. But the, I agree. The, the, I agree. The, yeah. 100%. That's kind of what the ex- expectation is on the user end. and Right.
0: Because credit cards are so widely used. Even even debit cards, the banks will will ultimately usually, I mean. They, they might honor, yeah. They'll usually honor in reverse. And, and you just prefer to use credit I always tell you know my friends and family like because the the credit card company it's not actually your money so like um the bank like if you use a debit card and have to reverse it like you're out that money until they do reverse it that money is gone from your account so that's why I never use debit cards um
1: I think this also goes back to like what really necessitates being on-chain versus off-chain. Right. Because the activity that actually happens on-chain, you should presume needs to have that level that of finality. Like a finality to it. Yeah. And also, that's what you want with the blockchain. That's right. what you want with a decentralized, credibly permissionless so. network. But there's a lot that doesn't have to happen on-chain. Like a lot of it can happen in a way that's reversible. And that's okay.
3: Tra- just a transfer. If I'm transferring an NFT, I'll I would love for to have a 30 minute timeout if I just fucked up the address or whatever.
0: You should be able to um like with some kind of time lock um situation.
3: At the
1: at the Open wallet C level, but like users,
3: yeah. yeah that's what I'm saying. But not, not
0: just at the wallet, wallet level. I or mean th- like you should be able to that, okay, this is interesting. That's a fair thing. So not their proposal. Their proposal is much more like it's like a for an entire class of tokens yeah. will have a DAO and then right, right. any if it were arise. You're saying you really want like a deployable contract. You want to store your stuff in like a Gnosis style contract that itself has like a non, it's like a Bitcoin style time lock. It's kind of like what covenants, what Bit119 on Bitcoin would allow um, is like, it is like a reversible transaction. It's not really, once it's actually settled, it's not reversible, but it's like there's a, you can put a time lock where it's unspendable until a certain time. And until then you could maybe interact with it and call it back.
3: Right. And not to say that this, is what their intent was. But I just think back to times where I've sent either large sums or valuable NFT. And every single time, even though I did it perfectly, I'm, it's still, stressful. I'm horrified.
0: <laughs> I'm still stressed I'm, when I move large amounts of Bitcoin, yeah. no doubt. It's, it's 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 so you're right. It's I, a
3: huge psychological barrier. And uh, any solutions that kind of might mitigate that, like this one. Well, and just to be just clear,
0: clear, even OTC desks. Yeah. When we transfer stuff, like we send tests, we like with each right. other, like we were careful. Like it's so, yeah, you, There, it is kind of interesting. Now, I don't, I think it's really this proposal we're talking about. Christine is rolling her eyes. Let's hear it.
1: I definitely don't agree. I think that you – that kind of, like, psychological terror, that should probably force you or kind of push you and motivate you to do some of that legwork off-chain. For sure. Like, I think most of, like, that due diligence should actually happen. Like, there shouldn't be any changes made to the immutability of the protocol layer itself just because of that, like – Fear, but
3: like, how do you do it? Like, so how do I make sure I copied my address correctly off chain? Like, at some point, no, you're still you just, gonna have the fear. You got to read the and first
0: eight characters and the look, last eight characters. That's the right. off chain. That's off chain. Yeah, but I,
3: I don't think that's a solution. Like, people are still gonna be scared, even if you tell them all the right well, steps. Well, I think
0: that's why something like this, either at again at the application level and maybe also at the wallet level, better safer UX, double check your stuff. Right. Maybe even like could be cool. Like test, like simulated test transactions could be cool. Like you, you set up the transaction in MetaMask and then you say like test and it literally like shows you exactly where it was going to go. And right. Like maybe that's, there's other ways. I think there's other
3: ways there's, there's solutions, but I have
0: no problem at the application level. If you want to build a smart contract that allows this, like, and people want to hold those tokens, like that's fine in my book. And, And that's in, in the researcher's defense from the anger, that's actually what they're proposing. Um, not that ethereum's base layer protocol introduced reversible eth native transfers
1: but that does bring and open up another whole can of worms where a lot of the conversation and the outrage between social slashing and chain split was if there was a version of the ethereum blockchain that basically re rewrote the entire transaction history to exclude censored transactions that were from like something on the OFAC list, like something that the US Treasury had deemed illegal versus an entire ch- history of transactions that did have, you know, interactions way back when with, I don't know, like some Silk Road addresses. Those kinds of conversations, I really think, put into a co- put into context why exactly we do need a protocol that right. cannot be changed right. ever.
0: Right. It's an interesting discussion. I think I'm definitely on them. I mean, at the protocol level, I'm like basically forcefully opposed to any transaction reversibility. Um but, you know, people can build what they want um, on the application layer. And so good on them for 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 building something, first of all. Um, and, you know, we I didn't just,
1: end up shitting on them.
0: You're right. We didn't. Um, and I, <laughs> it, it, because also, you know, the, the other obviously something like this we didn't say. But, you know, the way they've constructed it, of course, raises big questions about the security of this DAO. Right. Who can reverse them? But we won't get into that. And they and honestly, they have ideas about it, which are, you know, to, again, of course, to mitigate that. But um, all these types of things add. Am I the trade-off oor? Right? Uh, they had trade-offs. <laughs> they had trade-offs. Yeah. So, all right. Let's move on because we're. this is already a long podcast and we have a couple more things we want to talk about um, with Saul. So Christie's, um, they're going crypto even more. They've already been, they, they sold the Beeple. Yeah. Um, they, they've auctioned plenty of NFTs. They... Um, hosted a good conference that you went to, uh, the Art and Tech Summit, I think it was called mm-hmm. this summer. That's right. Um, big auction house, Christie's. They have launched a new on chain NFT marketplace called Christie's 3.0. I don't know what 2.0 was, by the way. Yeah.
3: What is it? Honestly, I think it's just a way for them to start auctioning high value art NFTs, in, quote unquote, in the metaverse in a Web3 native manner. Yeah, and so they're partnering with Manifold and Spatial to make this happen. So Manifold happen. Uh, Manifold handles the minting aspect for creators, and all of the cool features you could add onto NFTs. Uh, and Spatial is kind of like that immersive VR like experience that'll house this experience for Christie's. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a cool story. We'll see. I don't imagine a ton of volume happening through here. You know, whatever they end up selling. Normally, they'll probably now do through this Web three auction house. Uh, but it's it's cool.
0: Yeah. I mean I feel like it gives them a more global reach. It makes it easier, you know, you know, they going to auction an NFT. I got to like call them up and be on the phone, one of those right. or I got to go in person like it's it's like this is probably gives them more reach. It probably also it lets them access a consumer at a lower price point. Um they could probably start auctioning some stuff that's not, you know, people's 69 million dollar was it every day's. Um So, so I don't know. It's interesting. I, I, and I, you know, I, I like this because I like when crypto is overlapping with real world types of use cases and the incumbents recognize that and they try to do it. Um, and also like the stuff, you know, I like art. I mean, let's be real. I love art and there is some great NFT art. That's just a fact. Um, you know, I say that because there's some critics of NFTs, right? And, of course, I'm a critic of plenty of NFT stuff, too. It's not one thing. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, all power to him. Um A couple others, though, in the NFT marketplace yeah. uh, world that were kind of interesting. I saw there was some, like, heated debate between yes. two Solana NFT marketplaces, Hyperspace and Magic Eden, on Twitter.
3: Yeah. So, and to clarify, Magic Eden is like the... Biggest exchange by far in Solana. Hyperspace used to be called Soul analysis. They used to do NFT market data. Now they are kind of pushing it to aggregating marketplaces. So like what Gem did, what Genie did. Uh, they're doing that on Solana. The, the issue is this. There's one tweet from Magic Eden where they said, the allegations against us from Hyperspace are blatantly false. They spread misinformation and while we're trying to focus on their users. And then Hyperspace responded saying, Dear Solana, Magic Eden is working tirelessly to implement new ways to block aggregators. Users don't benefit from this. And they also said...
0: Well, those were the allegations that Hyper that uh, Hyperspace, uh, Hyperspace is, is referencing, or the Magic Eden was referencing, that the allegations yeah, were false? Yes. Yeah.
3: And the second allegation is uh, Magic Eden has been threatening and breaking Solana dApps for months. <laughs> so no evidence at all. These are just the official accounts for each company kind of just spitfiring um, a lot of heat i think what people are you know the discussion around this is that magic eden is this giant juggernaut they have all the liquidity they're kind of infamous for doing their launch pad um, nft drop feature which makes them a lot of money so but they're trying to own the whole stack own the whole stack but also a lot of collections that went to zero have launched through launch pad so there's <laughs> you know a bit of a mixed history there hyperspace on the other hand is now realizing hey we can just aggregate and kind of own the top of the funnel and drive traffic maybe it's to magic eden but maybe it's to a competitor Magic Eden doesn't like that because they already get a lot of traffic for NFT stats. I mean, we use them a lot for our reports. And so you have this weird tension now where they could start trying to push volume outside of Magic Eden. Uh, Magic Eden is trying to break their API that they use to do that. And so there's this debate now, you know, how Web3 is this? This is a juggernaut that's kind of turning on and off access to their liquidity through their exchange. And Hyperspace is outraged because it kind of breaks their product that has been getting a lot of traction. Interesting.
0: So not all, um, you know, adoption and happiness among these things, but it makes the aggregators like and the, I wonder, I bet there's a, it feels like there's a lot of um, uh, probably analogies to prior historical things outside of crypto where the aggregators Mm -hmm. go up against the, you know, the juggernaut single marketplace.
3: Plaid, Plaid and the banks. I've watched this unfold where they would block access to the banking API. So they would start screen scraping your financial data and that created all these legal issues you're
0: right um i actually that's a great example um we were looking at this you know i was once asking um when i worked at fidelity like why they allow this like because they're taking my password like they are storing my password this third-party plaid right like that's how they're when they scrape the thing but they make it look like you're logging into fidelity it's very strange and and i think there there was a tension there and it was interesting because the problem is that you know Fidelity and Schwab and the banks, like their customers want it. Yeah. Because you can't log into TurboTax or, you know, whatever, Credit Karma or these fintech apps with, you want to link your Fidelity account. And the banks hadn't made a way to do that, really, a lot of them. Um, and so if they block Plaid, which they want to, um, then their clients are upset because everyone is having so much fun using this new fintech <laughs> app and i can't use it because my bank's not allowing plaid yeah right so it's a weird tension that's a good good example
3: yeah the banks don't necessarily benefit from just allowing people to access your valuable data so all
0: right let's go to our last topic um Saul, uh you have an awesome report coming out today i know because i read it um, and edited it <laughs> and that it is awesome and it's called um, the history of gaming and its Web3 future. Um, you've been looking at gaming and Web3 in general. You're a gamer. Mm-hmm. I'm a gamer, too. Um, oh, yeah. For a long time. And I think the approach you took in this report is super interesting. It was looking through the history of game design and incentive, particularly incentive and economic design inside games. Exactly. Over the history of video games. I mean, as far back as the the first arcade games that yes. ever launched. Um, And all the different, and I didn't realize this, and this is meticulously and, um, and entertainingly written and explained in Saul's report, but all of the iterations and um, um, pivots and changes and tweaks that game developers have made over the decades to make games engaging and profitable. Yeah. Um, tell us, you know, I don't know, what are some of the key takeaways from the report that you want to share? I would recommend everyone read it. It's <laughs> on galaxy.com slash research.
3: Yeah, totally. I think kind of the goal with this report is to examine about 50 years of gaming history. Cause a lot of these Web3 developers think they're reinventing gaming. Oh, everything on chain is going to solve and save this industry that's already $200 billion and is doing just fine without <laughs> crypto. Um, so what I did is I did the reverse, right? Let's just examine what has been tried in in-game economic design. And fi- the findings from this report are kind of at odds with what has been tried in Web3. And one one key takeaway is just tokens later, game first. I think a lot of these companies kind of lead with, and these Web3 protocols lead with NFTs, they lead with fungible tokens, and people don't play games to make money. They go to casinos to play games to make money. People play games for completely different reasons that oftentimes have nothing to do with financial gain. Right,
0: diversion, socialization, like socializing. Yeah. Um, Mastering you know, skills,
3: ma- testing skills. Right,
0: challenge, yeah. puzzles.
3: And entering flow states and just. What
0: is that? You said flow state a bunch, what is that? Is that when I'm zonked out, like playing Call of Duty for two hours? <laughs>
3: yeah, I don't know about zonked out. I mean, m- maybe focused. <laughs> <laughs> um, even if you're at work, right? If you're writing, if I'm writing a piece and you're I'm 20 the minutes. Zone. You're in the zone. Yeah. And. It, what people like about it is you're very present you're not thinking you're just engaged. And that's, that's why we call gaming funds interactive funds. It's about interaction and being engaged with whatever medium you're in. Um, a lot of these early web three games, like, uh, Axie is the example I talk about a lot. It's effectively just, you're just clicking a lot and it's kind of just more like a DeFi protocol that has some gaming features. Um, uh, but, but there's a rich, rich history of gaming history. Um, that we can leverage and learn from to understand why games have certain features that maybe Web3 developers might have thought were bad but were actually the entire reason why they make money.
1: Are there any up-and-coming Web3 games in this space that you think have a lot of potential that actually fix a lot of the issues you saw with Axie and other um, games, blockchain games?
3: So it's impossible to know the entire field, um, but one example I point to that I think does a lot of things correctly and we've talked about this in newsletters, is uh, so rare's NFT fantasy trading guard game. So one reason why it works, obviously, because people are already familiar with fantasy sports. And so that game model engages people. People like playing fantasy sports, so they've kind of de-risked that. And their NFT features are interesting because it's completely free to play. You don't need any crypto at all. You could only just do the free version, and that's not on-chain at all. But if you get really good at the game, You can start entering higher level tournaments where you do need an NFT to enter, but you could win a more valuable one. And so they rely on this tournament structure to incentivize higher level engagement. And that's what drives their sales volumes for these NFTs. But they also cap the issuance. It's not an inflationary supply forever. It's 5,000 a season. Uh, But you can bring these with you to the next season. So, and I talk about a lot of these mechanics in detail. And it
0: is crazy, like the reputation stuff we talk about a lot with NFTs, signaling wealth. If we're talking about like owning a punk or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, those are huge dynamics in games. You talk a lot about this, like um, you know, we're talking about. I'm I'm joked about Call of Duty. It's one that you write about um, because they did a lot of innovation on on prestiging.
3: Yes, yes, Um,
0: and that stuff matters. Actually, it may seem frivolous, but that drives a lot of gaming engagement and therefore ultimately profits for game developers.
3: Absolutely, and, and kind of the origin of that story, it, I call it like a commodifying captivity, where it, you know, COD 4 was like the big game that kind of changed the dynamics here. They want to incentivize you to play that game, because it takes them three years to make it, so they, they're they not like a Madden. They, can't they don't just want you to play the,
0: the other com- opponent's game. They want you yeah. to keep playing their
3: game. Yeah, exactly. So when you max out your multiplayer level, they have this thing called prestiging, where you reset all of your stats, but you get this little emblem next to your name that signals to everyone else, you've in fact lapped them and done a prestige, and there's 10 of these levels. Right. And it increases your engagement, now you're holding onto the game longer, and now they can release map packs, which are much easier to develop. They make extra money. They effectively have earned two times the revenue for the game, because each map pack is $15, there's four of them, game is $60. They've doubled revenue, increased engagement, and uh, they kind of gamified your captivity within Call of Duty. It's this-
0: brilliant because, like, you want to have a high ranking, yeah, right? Right. And I think Call of Duty, uh, I haven't played it super recently, but it used to be 55 was the top, yeah. like, level. Meaning that, meaning that you had, like, done all the challenges and played for that long and gotten so many kills and whatnot. whatnot. Um, and if you didn't just like the game anymore that much, you the gamification stopped there. You can keep playing the game, of course, and most did. Right. But it was nice. You go into a lobby and people are like, oh, 55. Good. He's like played a lot of the game. Um, and so he must be pretty good. Um, and but you were done earning new new accolades and, and reputation at that point. By adding the prestige, you're resetting everything. So you go back to zero, basically, or you go back to one. Yep. And nobody wants to do that because then you're like, oh, they're like, who's this noob, <laughs> right? Yeah. But by adding this additional prestiging thing, everyone's like, oh, no, no, he's he's not a noob. He's just because it just adds more engagement. And then they did clever stuff, like you can get golden guns if you prestige yeah, the, the, skins, gun itself, the gun itself. Like gun skins, yeah. Skins, yeah. So it was very clever. Um, and it did work. And I And I can tell you, me and my friends, we did like you get to 55 and like at first i was like i don't know i want to keep my 55 and my buddy was like just do it no dude we're prestiging every time like we're immediately prestiging and just because like you just want to because the real it just added it's like adding block space it just added yeah reputation space all of a sudden it was like i can it's not 55 it's 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 550 yeah effectively basically um and it was just simple um people think that stuff is frivolous but it drove a lot of engagement and that's just one of the many Mm -hmm. like tactics Right. that the game developers have developed have developed over time to to drive engagement that again web 3 like you know they're sort of like building it in a box and not
3: yeah they're not learning like w- one way web3 could augment what we just talked about is forget about requiring an nft to like play call of duty or fungible token rewards just take the prestiging thing you make that a non-transferable nft now when I'm playing cod 10 years later because Cod's been out forever now, I can signal to everyone with a non-transferable NFT in my wallet that I'm using to play the game that I've prestiged 10 times in COD 4, 9 times in Modern Warfare 2. And a developer can then make a meta app that has no relation to Infinity Ward that also leverages this metadata on the non-transferable NFT and gate it only for people that prestige 10 times. And it could be like a community of just extremely uh, intense Call of Duty players. That's where Web3 can make gaming better. It's just not about... It's not all about just making the gamers richer because they just want to play games and and enjoy the games. Yeah.
1: But does the IP and the copyright issues around NFTs kind of make the Web3 vision totally? um,
0: It's interesting. I I don't think it it causes issues. Yes, it could place some restrictions on how stuff is used. But recall, again, that we're talking about metadata. Like it's it's like me getting, you know, taking a picture of myself going to a, a football game right? And then proving that as proof that I went, right? Like it's in this case, it's a picture on the chain that says I played the game, right? Yeah. Um. So, you know, could the metagame like put the Call of Duty logo in their metagame? Maybe not, but they could certainly say, hey, only if you can prove to me that you were this good at Call of Duty 10 years ago. Yeah. And that, that is fine that you can prove, right? So that's one example that you're giving, but um, it, it, that, I think that one of the key takeaways for me from this report first of all just the really entertaining history of you know the, <laughs> the only medic the only um like reputation and gamification of games in the beginning was like the high score yeah. on pac-man Good Local right? high score and there's tons of i mean depending on how old our listeners are i mean even you know I, i'm one of i think i'm probably the oldest person in this room um and and our arc- the real arcade era was well before me um but we had arcade games there was one i remember at the local pizza place i used to go to in my hometown <laughs> and um you somebody would get on the high score thing and stay there for a long time. Yeah. And you would see that and people would be like bragging that they were on it. And like that was incentive to put quarters in the machine. Yes. Right. That made money for the game. Um, you were talking about how they even published high yeah. scores in newspapers. in newspapers.
3: They did. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So that, that stuff is very simple but powerful. Um, and there's a bunch of other fun examples. That's my favorite part of the report is the history that you do. But then Saul takes the – the history and breaks it down into these principles and primitives of how they actually work, the sinks and faucets that drive in game economies. Yep. Um, it's a really exciting story. And, and I do. um, And, but I think that key takeaway, you said token later game first, right? I mean, this is the game's gotta be good. It's gotta be a fun game. Otherwise it's not a game. Yeah. It's not a game. If it's actually just a, you know, a click farm to harvest, you know, artificial yield. Like that's
3: not a game. Yeah. It's not a game. Make that, the that's... game fun. That's a casino or a DeFi, and, you know, quickly, if you just think about who plays games, I break it down into this matrix that, uh, like, in Game Economist. I love this part, too. Yeah, Game Economist, um, Bartle did in the 90s, and I kind of just recreated it and kind of adapted it for modern games. But But 80% of people who play games will not spend money. They're called socializers. They're very, very low LTV customers. They're just playing because their friends are on it. And they want to just collaborate and belong with their communities.
0: Have fun, joke around.
3: Yeah. Good time. And so that's what free to play. And we break down the top 10 uh, earning mobile games in 2021. Every single one is free to play. It's a very small fraction. that generates most of the revenue. I think you
0: said some, some huge percentage of revenue is generated by 0.15% of players. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's, it's insane. I think 80% is under 2% of the player base revenue breakdown. And, um, so it's, they, they refer to it as like catching a whale versus a minnow. Uh, but I guess the broader point with all this is if you're not building a web three grain a web three game, that's fun for that 80% that will never spend money. Good luck making any money or getting any adoption. Right. Mm-hmm
0: lots of interesting stuff in there. I mean, I would recommend anybody trying to integrate Web 3 features into a game, read this report. Um, shout out one of the games I've been hailing <laughs> all week. I'm obsessed with from Thunder Games, um, a Bitcoin gaming company, is this club Bitcoin game. Uh, you can earn sats for playing solitaire.
1: But you have to watch ads, which nobody wants to do well, ever. Yeah, oh. but, you, but
0: in this case, you get paid. That's the whole point. I mean, that, that this is a little different.
1: Fractions <laughs> of a penny, though. Yeah,
0: it's true. It is true. But um, it, will I bring up though because you know I, there's a million solitaire apps on the on the on the app store but only one of them pays you a cut of the ad revenue um and that's that's a different un, yet another model um in, in utilizing some of these uh primitives um it's not uh and, and it's fun and they have other ones too um but read Saul's report cuz it's really good and it's very fun uh and it should be on our website today Friday um, and, you know, I think uh, I think that's it, guys. This was a, a long one, but a good one. It's good to see you in New York here. Um, good luck to everyone. And the weather is beautiful in most of the East Coast, at least. So if you're on the East Coast of the U.S., we're in that great time of fall uh, where everything is great. And um, just, you know, be careful out there in the markets. Uh, a lot of crazy stuff happening in the world. Um, but we'll see you next week. Uh, this was Galaxy Brains. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. That's all for today. See you next time.